You're listening to the Dead Noise Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe and enjoy today's episode. And we are back, Dead Noise listeners. Gotta say, it's good to be back in the chair and to do it while having such an amazing guest like today's Ben Hamilton from Kicking the Punt. To give you a bit of a background, I've recorded several episodes which will start coming out weekly under this new Dead Noise banner. From a personal perspective, an almost selfish one, I jumped at the opportunity to speak with Ben. Pokey machines have not only destroyed the community around me in many ways, but have also at times played a pretty detrimental role in my life. Like many young Australians, I grew up thinking having a punt is part of our life. Almost as Aussie as getting blind drunk on Australia Day, you could say. Until you realise it's a disgusting and harmful way of life and not something that I want to continue doing going forward. Pokies need to go and we need to be more vocal about the changing culture that surrounds them. In my opinion, there's few better people more qualified than someone like Ben to lead this charge. And like our drinking culture in Australia, our views around gambling need to change. As a small disclaimer, this episode does touch on dark topics. Ben is unrelenting in how he goes through and explains this tragic culture surrounding pokey machine addiction. Please, if you are uneasy with the discussion around mental health and suicide, tune out now. For those seeking help, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. This episode is a great episode to share and I hope that this does spread the awareness around a toxic culture that is destroying parts of Australia. So please sit back and enjoy this interview with Ben Hamilton from Kicking the Punt. Welcome to today's show. With us today, we have Ben Hamilton from Kicking the Punt. Ben has launched an anti-gambling advocacy group that aims to shine a spotlight on this deadly destructive part of our society that goes at many times unnoticed. Ben's released a documentary titled Our Stories, Our Truth, The Suicide of Gary Van Deneen. Gary took his own life in 2018 because of a pokey machine addiction and the documentary follows his footsteps on that tragic night. Gary's story is sadly not an isolated one, where at-risk gamblers have a 15 times higher chance of committing suicide, with some studies showing at least one in five gamblers attempt suicide. Gary spent his final night at his local RSL where he had a long history drinking and gambling. The RSL has a mission statement that outlines their aim to promote government and community awareness of the need for a secure and progressive Australia. You have to ask yourself, though, where does filling your cubs, clubs with soul-destroying, life-wrecking, suicide-causing pokey machines fit into the community awareness? We've come a long way from the Whitlam's anthem of Blow Up the Pokies, and it seems we're in a much worse place than when the song was released. Ben, mate, thanks for coming on, and I'm really looking forward uh, to today's chat. It's my pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me with you. 
I mean, it's hard hard to start such a big topic like this, such as pokies in Australia. And I feel like we were talking off air just briefly just before. You're tackling such a massive problem. I wanted to ask, how did you get here? And before we get into kicking the punt and before we get into the doco that you've released, um, how did you end up uh, in this position and so passionate about uh, tackling this issue that really doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion, um, and doesn't get the spotlight it deserves? Yeah, mate. So, I mean, I've I've had, you know, my battles with uh, addiction disorder through gambling. Um, I was exposed to it at a pretty young age as a, as a kid. Um, my parents gambled, their parents gambled. So it was intergenerational. Um, I was predisposed to, to gambling and, and addictive tendencies at a young age, like I said. So I would, um, I can remember, you know, being the age of four and five and, uh, knowing that my parents would go to the club, um, with, with my grandparents and usually on a, on a Friday or a Saturday night. And I soon, uh, lost together knowing that, you know, they came home. I would know whether they had won or whether, whether they had lost and at a young age, uh, being, you know, not much older than what my son is now. Um, so I suppose throughout my childhood, my parents gambling, I always knew that they gambled. It wasn't something that they did, um, you know, I mean, there was probably stages where they gambled weekly, um, but towards as I got older, they it was um, less and less frequent. And as soon as I turned eighteen, I hit the ground running with gambling. Um, it was it wasn't really normal in my close group of mates. Um, there's six of us in our group, and we've all known each other since we were about seven years old, and. I was the facilitator for gambling in, in my group. Um, I didn't know that back then, but knowing what I know now, that that was my role within, you know, within my within my tight circle. And I would gamble pretty much any time I had spare money. I would gamble, um, and once I sort of hit my early twenties, that's when the addiction really started to manifest, and it essentially piloted my life. Uh, from the age of 18 right up to the age of 29. Um, and it's something that I have an intimate understanding with um, from all different aspects through seeing it, uh, my parents and my grandparents struggle with it to, you know, reflecting a lot this year on my own struggles with, with gambling. And it, it's, uh, it becomes a lifestyle. Um, you work you know, you eat, you breathe just to make sure that you can uh, set up your next gambling episode or gambling bender, whatever you want to call it. And it changes as well. As as it, as I got older, I mean, I'm 30 this year, uh, as I got older, I gambled less frequently, but it became a lot more destructive. Um, and the reason why, that, why my gambling changed is because I met my now wife, Jasmine, and uh, she sort of let it go on for the first 12 months of our relationship but then she put her foot down and um anyone that knows my wife and myself we're very we're very uh very strong opinioned and strong-willed people in certain respects and she she challenged me and uh it took many years to to break that conditioning 
of the addiction and a lot of misery along the way. But we're now coming up to one year free of the punt, which is my last bet was on the 9th of December. Um, and that's purely due to her influence and uh, the work that we've both done and the hard work that I've, I've, I've had to, had to do to, to beat this thing. Um, I've gambled at all kinds of different levels. I've gambled on, you know, anything you can think of, but my main, uh, my main sort of area that I like to gamble in was poke machines and they, it's the closest thing to uncensored hypnosis that I've ever experienced. And I've tried all different kinds of methods and, um, medication, you name it, to try and defeat the gambling addiction. But what it really came down to was just the will to really want to stop. And, um, I mean, uh, I tried to end my life twice. Uh, I'd, I've had two suicide attempts due to my gambling addiction. And, you know, I've, I've, I've especially in the last sort of four years, where I really started to do, you know, a lot of work on my gambling addiction and trying to beat it. Suicide's been a constant, um, a constant sort of option for me on the table, knowing that, you know, I've had those attempts and I knew that that was my final option. I knew that if it was, if I couldn't defeat it, and I say defeat it because gambling's like, I envision gambling as like a demon that takes over your life and you have to eventually, eventually um, battle it and, and beat it. And if you don't beat it, the only way, well, there's two options. You just continue on uh, living the life of misery that you live, or you you end your own life, and and that's that's the reality for a lot of people. Um, and I have no issues with saying that because it's the absolute truth, and I can say that coming from my own experience. But also, I was speaking with you know thousands of people this year that are that are still actively engaged in that battle with that demon, and it's all the same. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, what background, what demographic you come from. If you if you get conditioned um, and eventually become addicted to gambling, whether it's poker machine, sports betting, whatever it may be, you'll have to eventually battle it, and th- that's the only way you can you can get through it. Um, so yeah, I, I have a pretty uh, intimate understanding of of gambling, um, and I sort of hit a bit of a. I uh, had an epiphany, I suppose. So my first suicide attempt was in uh, 2015 um, and I didn't really acknowledge it. And But that's what sort of kick-started me into really starting to get into therapy and um, and other sorts of things to sort of really try and address it. Um, but I still gambled for years after that. My second suicide attempt, which is probably my more... I call it uh, my defining moment, I suppose. Um, that was in 2018. And that really sort of um, changed the landscape for myself because I was a father by, by that point. And um, I still remember very vividly. Uh, so I tried to run my car off the road. Um, and this is not because I'd lost all my money. I'd actually had a day where I finished a job, I got paid a bit of cash. Um, I was at the RSL at about 11 o'clock. Um, I gambled all afternoon, drunk all afternoon, was completely pissed, um, kept winning. I couldn't I, I couldn't not win. Like anything I touched, I'd win. Um, and to me, my cycle towards the end was I would, I would get money. Um, I would then turn my phone off. 
so my wife couldn't track me or try and work out where I was. Um, and I'd gamble as hard and, and drink as hard as I could until it all ran out. And then I'd go home with my tail between my legs and then I'd start the whole cycle again. And that was my cycle um, leading up to that to that attempt on my life. But that particular night, I just couldn't um, – I couldn't not lose, and which meant I couldn't go home and face music. So I got to a point where I was driving to the third venue and I just thought, fuck this – accelerated and drove my car off the road. Thankfully, I didn't hurt myself um, and or hurt anyone else. And the next day, um, I, I mean, I was just completely crushed on the inside. Of, uh, the next day, I, I just felt nothing on the inside. And I remember laying on the floor in the fetal position and my son was still crawling at that stage and he's crawling up to me and saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. Um, you know, and I, I looked at my son and Anyone that knows me knows how much I love and care for my son, just like any father, really. But um, I felt nothing for my son and it just absolutely scared the shit out of me. And I knew at that point that I needed to like, to beat this. And it still took me a few relapses, um, intensive therapy, medication, uh, huge amount of energy and support from my wife, often at her own detriment to her own mental health and I finally hit that point on the 9th of December last year, 2019. Um, same pattern, got a bit of access to money, phone switched off, booked a hotel room for the night, went to a venue, pulled out 400, burned it straight away, pulled out another 400. I call it burning when you put money through a machine because that's essentially what you're doing. I still had about $800 or so left in my bank account and for whatever reason, I just got up and I left the venue. I went to that hotel room. I sat there for a few hours in tears. Um, I messaged my wife. She was obviously pretty upset and worried about where I was and pissed off that I was doing this again. Um, and I just said, can I come home? And she said, yes, come home. So I came home. We went to, I went to sleep that night in the spare room. I woke up the next morning and I looked at my wife. And I said, I'll never gamble again. And obviously she's heard that a million times. And it was just it. I just, I don't know. I, I rack my brain often uh, now and I try and work out how the, what the fuck it was that, was enough for me to finally break that and just have a, a break from that that cycle that I was living. And then I knew that, you know, I'd gone after that suicide attempt in 2016, I went about six months of, off the punt and that was the longest I'd ever been. So I knew I could get back to that to that point again. But I knew by that point I would if I hit that six month milestone again, that's when I'd get into trouble because I'd already hit that margin and i and I I failed. So that's when we started talking about um, starting kicking the pun. And I mean, we, we spoke about kicking the pun in 2018 after my suicide attempt, but it took us a few years to, to really commit to the idea. And I found now through the work we do with kicking the pun, it keeps me honest. Um, it's a daily, a daily reminder of the struggles that people face. You know, people, I say that the people that are in the trenches and fighting that battle. And I, I get that daily reminder. We get, many, many messages every week of people struggling and we, Jazz and I, we read every single message and we do that because we really do give a fuck about this problem that our country is now facing and we, we, we want to try and make some kind of impact and, and shift shift the balance a little bit because at the moment we're going on a downward spiral and, you know, gambling's becoming more prevalent in the community, more accessible um, 
you watch the suicide rates skyrocket if things don't change in the next 10 years. And that's what motivates us and pushes us. And I use my own journey and my own lived experience with gambling to try and give others a place and a platform to share their experience. Because when you talk about your battles and you talk about your struggles, it empowers you and you empower other people to, to share their truth um, and speak about their journey. And then that in turn empowers you as well. So it's a, it's kind of like this energy exchange and people are mutually supporting one another and we're seeing it in our community firsthand. Like we're still grassroots level. We have about 5,000 people across um, our platforms now and we probably get about 10,000 engagements a week. Still, you know, it's it's not, it's it's massive compared to where we first started, but we're seeing, we're, we're seeing people um, do the exact same thing that I did now and it, it works. Like this kind of concept of, I call it owning your shit and you have to do that as, as a gambling addict. Otherwise you won't beat it because if you can't be honest and accountable with yourself, you won't, you won't beat it. And it, there's a whole nother level to that. And I call it owning your shit. You have to, you know, just as much as the industry is, is highly predatory and geared towards conditioning and addicting people, you also have to look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, I've got myself to this situation. Yes. With, with a lot of help from the industry, but I need, it's up to me to get myself out of this situation. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are or how strong you are. If you find yourself conditioned or addicted by gambling, no matter how many people are around you that will support you and help you, you'll become addicted. And I was someone who had, um, I, I was medically discharged from the army in 2016 with PTSD and I had uh, free mental health care. I had a, a loving wife. I had really good mates around me. I had good family members around me. I had endless support for, for many, many years and it was still a massive struggle for me to get through it. And to me, that's what really makes me do this every day because I know there's so many people out there that don't have that access to that help that I did. So I'm trying to trying to uh, create something where people can come and it's it doesn't cost them any money and they can they can post something or they can they can call someone or they can join our support group they can do whatever they need to do to feel like they're supported in this because if they feel that bit of support they they will get through it um, but yeah that that in a nutshell is, is a, you know a, a brief sort of snippet of my journey and sort of where we are now with with uh, with what we're doing with kicking the punt. Yeah, thanks for that, mate. I mean, first of all, massive courage to speak so honestly and to go through that step by step. And to be honest, on a personal level, it sends shivers down my spine because, and I'm sure this this is why I think you're going to be so successful with this is because your story is so relatable. I grew up on the Gold Coast uh, with RSLs, you know, pokey machines everywhere. I, mean, I think the first time I gambled with my friends we were 16 at the casino. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we'd sneak into the casino and play the pokey machine. So yeah. I'm in my late 30s now and, you know, gambling was a big part of my life for a long time and a big part of a small group of my friends as well. And this afternoon when I mentioned to a few of them that I was doing this text and we were having a chat about it, all of those points that you, you discussed are all familiar stories regarding the suicide, regarding the, 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 the losing the will to be able to fight it. Yeah. 
the gambling and the pokies and all of that, what it does is it just sucks you down to to sort of the lowest form of yourself. And you end up losing the ability to want to fight and the winning is no longer enjoyable and the losing is exactly the same as the winning. And anyone that's done therapy for gambling or anything else, a lot of gamblers enjoy losing. They want to hurt themselves. It's a a sick, sick cycle. And to hear what you've done and, and going through and starting this kick in the punt, and when I speak to a lot of mates that have had issues with gambling and, and in my group of friends and all of that, we all say we wish we did it before. And when I saw you pop up, I don't have much, I don't have any social media personally or anything like that. But when I saw you popped up, what really got me going and what got me excited is your willingness to really want to tackle the big issues and not pussyfoot around how this is impacting our society and the key players in who are driving this problem. And as you said, I mean, it's so important. Take ownership. Definitely take ownership. And you do have to take ownership as a human, but we have to realise that a lot of these establishments are set up to basically say that they're helping the community when they're killing the community. Yeah. really disgusting thing and blowing the whistle on something like that is really important and I I couldn't be happier to see someone like you doing what you're doing so you're saying you thought about kicking the starting kicking the punt with your wife in 2018 which I I think it's so important to have a good support system around you and obviously it sounds like you've you've got that so in 2018 so did you plan on making the doco from day one or because Gary took his life in 2018 yeah a simultaneous thing as starting kicking the punt or how did no. you how did so you Gary that, that manifest it was basically like I remember sitting there you know it was not long after I attempted on my life and I watched what happened to G Gary unfold on the news and it just it rocked me like it it just was like that little like I just, yeah, just went straight through me after seeing, you know, that I would do something for that man one day. Like, and it was weird because I literally said that to myself. I'm like, I will make sure that his story is told and people never forget what happened to him because that nearly happened to me. And that that's where it stayed for, for a few years. Um, and then we started kicking the punt at the start more around the start of this year, uh, start of this year or late last year. Um, and I started doing a bit of stuff with the Alliance for Gambling Reform and um, they got me a, a radio interview on the ABC and I just did exactly what I did with you. It was just honest, authentic about my story and every fucking media outlet wanted me to jump on and, and say my piece or whatever. And it just went for a whole month. It was crazy. Like I did... Radio, I did the Today Show, I did Channel 9, I did all these, you know, little snippets here and there, um, constant emails, Take 5, Lab Bible, like just it was, yeah, it was chaos for a month and I'm like, I'm, I'm doing every single one because, like you said, at this, you know, when we were chatting off air, it's not spoken about enough. So I was I was committed. I, I looked at my wife and said, I'm going to do this. She said, I got you back. You do this. This is important. And I got a message one night um from Gary's mum, Joy, and I didn't see it straight away. 
And I didn't put two and two together as well straight away once I did see the message because I was getting a lot of messages at that point from people saying, oh, so nice to hear, you know, you speak so openly about your struggles. But I went back to it about a week later and I was like, holy shit, that's Gary's mum, Joy Van Doonen. I was like, that's Gary's mum. And then Joy and I started, I sent Joy another message and it took Joy a little while to get back to me um, and we just started talking. Um, and then eventually um, we started talking about, you know, because it's very hard. How do, you, how do you speak to a loved one, like a mother whose son suicided? And Joy um, is an incredible woman. And I, I brought it up with her one day. I said, I want to know what happened to G. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to ask her. It might upset her, but I want to know. I want to know what happened. And she said to me, um, she goes, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Like there's no stone that we can leave unturned. You can ask me whatever you want. Yeah, it might be uncomfortable, but I see what you're doing now. You're not doing it for – you're doing it what you're doing for the right reasons. Your motivations are, are, are pure and I, I'm an open book. And I said, okay. Well, I was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll, I'll push it one step further. I said, I want to do something. I want to come down. I want to speak to you. I want to speak to Gary's mates. I want to go knock on clubs in New South Wales door and see if they'll talk to us. I want to, I want to do something. And I, and I said, I want to film it. I want, and I want to be able to put something together. And she said, yes. So, which I was, I wasn't sure whether she was going to say yes or not. And so we just said, all right, let's do it. Um, by that we had a, by that point we had a, a decent little following on social media and Jazz and I were going to pay for it ourselves. Like we, we set a budget of 5k and we had a bit of money put aside, coincidentally enough, because I don't fucking gamble anymore. It's the first time I've actually had money in the bank. So I said, let's let's do something good with it. And but then, you know, often we get a lot of people trying to throw money at a kick in the punt. People want to donate. Like, how can we donate? How can we help? Because obviously it touches a lot of people, this issue. And then so we said, let's start a GoFundMe. And, yeah, we got up to around 4,000, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. And, um and, yeah, we went down there with um, another a good friend of mine now who is now the vice president of Kicking the Punt, Dan Saunders, um, and another mate of mine, Alex Bowden, who who did all the filming for stuff. He's someone I've known for, um, you know, many years now. We went to the same school together and, and he um, he's pretty passionate about mental health stuff. He's lost a lot of mates to suicide, so he was on board and we basically used that money to, to pay for the flights and to go down and to do all the filming and all the editing and stuff. So that's how that, that whole process started. And we just kind of went with it. Um, I'm still very impulsive, even though I don't gamble anymore. So when I, when I set my target on something, I'm pretty tenacious until, until, you know, I get, until I'm satisfied with, with whatever we, you know, whatever I wanted to achieve. And, and I'm proud of what we achieved and, and just the whole the whole experience was just very like it just humbled the absolute shit out of me to to be, um, you know, go down and speak to his family, to speak to his to his mates, all, all all different kinds of people, and they all said the same thing. And even to go to DYSL, uh, we went there, you know, we were surrounded by security guards pretty quickly and asked us to leave. But just it felt like I was walking in his um, walking in his in his shoes. And for someone that had touched me on such a personal level when I didn't know anything about him or anything about Joy or his mates or anyone, it was just a, um, yeah, a very surreal experience. And and I think I think it is quite confronting to watch, um, but it's important 
as well because that's the truth and that's what ends up happening to people that don't beat their addiction, don't beat that gambling team. And that, like, that's they literally, like I said before, they either continue that cycle of misery or they end their lives. There's no, there's no, or they beat it. That's the only outcomes that you have with the gambling addiction. Right on. And it was very confronting seeing you have chats with his mates and just seeing how open they were with it. One of the big things is I noticed is no one really, and this is always the case I find with bad gambling and, and people that are excessive gamblers is no one knows the true extent of how badly these people are dealing with this issue. And his mates, although they were extremely co- close to him and, and cared for him you know, so much, no one really knew what he was suffering inside and how much time and money he was pumping through the RSL. Yeah. Giving the listeners just a brief background into the, the doco is available on YouTube for free, so you can just easily search it. But if you can give us a brief um, background into Gary's uh, gambling, just strictly the gambling and how DY, uh, I'm not going to say facilitated, but uh, how his status at DYRSL basically helped him to feel comfortable spending so much money and continually um, feeding that beast. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to say facilitated because that's exactly what those. I'm not even. I'm trying really hard not to use the c word anymore. But that's exactly what they did. Is they they encouraged and enticed and made sure that he spent maximised the amount of time that he was in front of those machines. Um, so yeah, G's story with gambling. I think he'd always gambled. Um, you know, in his uh, early twenties you know, right up until the point he took his life. But his gam- his journey with gambling accelerated um, in 2016. He won a jackpot at DY and then he won another jackpot uh, within the space of a few weeks. And um, it was a substantial amount of money, around 60K, I believe. And he got to a point where it just consumed his whole life um you know he suicided in 2018 in 2016 he wins the first jackpot they immediately dyrsl immediately upgraded him to the diamond tier which is the highest tier for their uh vip ambassadors what that's what they call it um and then a few weeks later he won another jackpot um and from all accounts from that point in that was the that was pretty much his moment of no return. Um, he lost that money that he won pretty quickly um, after speaking to Joy and his mates. You know, it was only a matter of months before he'd lost that 60 and then he was down 50. Um, keeping in mind all these figures are when his card was, his VIP card was put in the machine and that was just from one venue. Um, that was just from DY. So he lost about, before he suicided, around 240K. But while his car was engaged in that machine, he turned over 3.45 million just at DY alone. Um, and then, you know, he was a builder. I'm assuming he was on pretty good coin. And when you play pokies pretty regularly, you lose, but you do win. Um, you, ne- you never win money because you always put it back through, but you'll get, you know, 
it'll it'll bump you up and then it'll take it all and it'll bump you back up again. That's just the cycle. But over time, it eventually grinds you down. Um, Back to G. So I think uh, towards the end, right before he suicided, um, I think he knew deep down that it was was getting to a a pretty critical point and he did attend a few GA meetings, um, but he didn't really like the vibe. he had a few loans out with um, with his mum Joy to help pay off uh, material bills and things like that, um, and he paid back the first one, and then you know he borrowed more money. Um, Who's this? You know, that living that week to week cycle he would have been in, and just trying to do anything he could to facilitate that gambling habit. As far as DY's involvement, um, DY basically so. Before Gary suicided, they had a red carpet VIP entrance um, where the top 100 uh, gambling ambassadors, let's call it the top 100 losers, uh, because that's what they were, the people that lost or turned over the most amount of money at the venue, they had this VIP area. So they had their own parking, they had the red carpet entrance, they just walked straight in. As soon as G would walk in, they would don't know exactly who he was, get whatever drink he wanted. I can't remember whether his favourite drink was rum or or bourbon, but anyway, he would get belt-fed drinks all afternoon, all evening or all morning, whichever, whenever it was that he was actually there. Um, and, yeah, they, they knew. Like they even got, you know, found out what kind of cigarettes he liked to smoke and they would send someone, a staff member from the venue. Um, he liked these Balinese cigarettes, um, and they, they only sold them at uh, the petrol station across the road. So they would send a staff member out to get cigarettes for G, so he didn't have to leave the machine. Um, they wined him, they dined him, they gave him free um, harbour cruises, free days at the races, um, you name it. They they done it because, and, and Gary would Gary felt you know when he was there he felt like a king. I mean as you would, he he had that. He accrued that many points through his gambling that he could take, you know, 10 couples out and feed them and they could get drinks all night. They wouldn't even put a dent in the points that he accrued through this loyalty system. The industry and DYRSL in particular is predatory. Their whole business model is designed around bringing people through their doors to extract as much money out of them through the poker machines, the year that Gary, that Gary, um, the year that Gary suicided, the DY financial year, I think they, I believe their total revenue revenue was sixty two mil. Uh, Thirty nine million was were from the pokies, um, and they gave back one point six six percent of their uh, gross total revenue to the community. So they gave back, I think, don't quote me on this, but I can get you the exact figures: one million and forty seven through voluntary contribution and there was about 900 odd thousand that they had a mandatory op, op, uh, obligation to give which gave them a huge ta- tax break so they essentially spent a bit to, to save a shitload in tax but Gary's yeah sorry go ahead I just want to touch on that one point like when you say DYRSL is predatory I mean personally I haven't been in a single RSL that isn't predatory and yeah. When I look at RSLs across Australia, you, the first thing you walk in is is this, 
you see this, and I've got friends that served in the military like yourself. I've got a friend who died in Afghanistan, family, uh, family members who have served in the uh, military. Um, there is help that is needed out there. But what these RSLs are doing is not helping the people that need it. And the, the, there are, I, I want to say, a stain on the community because if anyone who looks in a pokey room, you see the elderly and you see a lot of people who really shouldn't be there but they've been sucked in by the RSL. Yeah. And that strain on that group of people is devastating. And a few years ago... I had a friend who was spending a lot of money through our local RSL and we found out how much was getting pumped. It was like $125,000 a day was going through it. And this is not a big RSL. This is a you know local um, Gold Coast RSL. And if you look at the damage that that's doing in that small, tiny community where it's mostly pensioners' money that is going through that, it is disgusting. Yes. Yeah. It's not just the financial side. It's the fact that these people are going home, these, these, these pensioners essentially going home and not eating. They're not yeah. eating for the entire week. They're not getting help when they're sick. So the flow-on effect from what this RSL is doing to a part of the community, which is not your, you know, it's not the people that, um, it's the people that are in need that are getting really hurt by, by these places. And it's about time that more is done and it, it's disgusting. Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. Like it's, you know, a lot, there's RSLs in Sydney that are literally built like retirement villages next to the RSL. There's some that are even connected to the RSLs and you, you see them, mate, like they get them, you know, they'll, they'll send the courtesy bus on pension day. All the oldies will get dressed up, you know, they'll come in, like, free coffee, free cakes, they... They all know, you know, the vulnerable people in our community and they, they they just bring them in. It's like a human farm, mate. They bring them through the doors and they sit them down on the machines and they shit themselves and they piss themselves and they say, it's all right, it's all right, Doreen, I'll just go and get you another stool. Not a problem. It just happens It's and it's just absolutely fucked. There's no other way to put it and they don't even they don't even realise what, you know, what, what, what they're actually doing. Like they don't understand what's happening to them because they get, they're being conditioned and addicted um, by the machines. And you're right. Um, I haven't stepped foot in an RSL that doesn't have the same kind of business model and it's got nothing to do with, with veterans anymore. They hide, hide under the guise of they, they do so much for the community because, you know, they support the local fucking cricket team or, you know, they build a little program for the kids' school and they do all this PR stuff that looks great on paper. But if you actually look at the figures and, you know, look at D, you look at any RSL, look at what they take and look at what they give and it's completely disproportionate. And if you, even if they gave back, say, 50% of the money that they took, you're still not even addressing the amount of harm that's caused by having these machines so saturated throughout our community, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales. It just doesn't matter what you say or what kind of argument you put against, put towards me. Like if it's, there's no economic argument to back it up for every million that they make in revenue, costing about three million um, to, in social costs, all these issues, domestic violence, homelessness, um, you know, the elderly, it's, it's endless. They, it's just an endless toxic fucking cycle. And the only people that are, that are truly profiting out of this whole thing is the people that are engaged within the industry and, um, 
the people that, you know, that are involved with the industry. And it's not just, it's a complex puzzle. It's not just, um, you know, the RSLs of, they all, in New South Wales, they all pay a membership to clubs in New South Wales. There's a peak, peak lobby group for clubs in New South Wales. Now, then they then spend money in, um, you know, Labor and Liberal National, they donate a lot of money to them. So they've got their, their fingers in the pies there. They've got academics, um, you know, take money from the industry and then that research that that particular academic does then, you know, dictates uh, public health policy in regards to gambling reform. It's just like whichever way you look, they're there and they're powerful. They're they're on the same level as the NRA is in America, the National Rifle Association. They're a very powerful lobby in the United States and our gambling lobby over here is on the same level. And they hide in the shadows. They're all dogs. They are, they're cowards. And when you go and knock on their on their front door, on their head office, they won't come out and talk because they're they're pussies and and they know that they know that they're doing the wrong thing. And the way they, they sleep at night is to dehumanise addicts and say that it's only a small percentage of people that are problem gamblers, which by the way, I hate that fucking term problem gamblers, because it's not me that has the problem. The, the problem is the industry. And I'm 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 someone who completely is transparent and owns my shit and accepts that I I fell prey to this industry and I caused a lot of damage and I'm atoning for the damage that I've caused to the people that care about me and, and to myself. But you still can't escape the fact that the, the industry is predatory and I'll keep saying it until they're held accountable. But it's re- it's hard. Like I've put, I've had a lot of sleepless nights and uh, you know just for many months. You know, a few months ago, uh, trying to work out how we could could make this right, and it's it's not going to happen overnight because, like I said, they're very powerful, they're very well connected, and they're very quick to to you know squash any kind of resistance, um, especially like us and kicking the punt. You know, we're predominantly here to support people, but we're here to call bullshit when we see bullshit as well. And they either bully people like us in submission, or they try and throw money at us to shut us up. And we're not going to be intimidated and we're not taking any fucking money from those dogs because that's what they are. And it doesn't matter how much they throw, how much money they throw at us to subdue us or what they try and offer us or entice us to, to toe the line. But we will not do it until they're held accountable, until things really do change. Well, you've sort of like touched on something I wanted to touch, uh, like get into later in the pod. And um, yeah, you can sort of jump to it now because from past podcasts and shows and like uh, when I used to do radio and stuff like that, uh, so there were certain topics I touched and copped a lot of heat for and it was difficult. It got to the point where, you know, it, it became too hard and it became really difficult for me to continue. This topic of gambling and the RSL is something I've, I've got to say I've been passionate about for a fairly long time. Yeah. I stopped drinking due to like health issues maybe about two or three years ago and I started going through that um, therapy process that you're discussing and gambling came up in that whole process and how my relationship with alcohol and uh, everything with my whole life and how everything is tied in together, taking ownership and all of that sort of thing. But it made me look at places like the RSL and how they're preying on people in a completely different light. And I started reviewing things like how much money was getting back into the community and all of that. And I did want to really uh, start driving home uh, and discussing these issues. And I just think it's amazing that you are tackling it. 
for you, you're obviously calling bullshit on a on almost like an establishment in Australia. It's almost like when you say don't drink on Australia Day. Yeah. It's, it's like something you can't say in Australia, but it's like when you dissect it and you say, well, look, why should we be drinking alcohol? Why, why should that be our day to, you know, drink alcohol and get super pissed? Yeah. Gamble and RSLs, you almost, you, it's sacrilege to put them down and it's this, it's this conversation that you almost can't have because people are uneducated about the pain that these places are calling. So as far as pushback, mate, like it's going to be a long road, but what's the plan? For me, I think there should be no, like it's a conflict of interest having an RSL and a place that's saying that they're for community awareness that has poker machines. So for me, the long-term goal and the long-term plan should be is to get the fucking things out of RSLs, get them out of, you know, clubs and pubs in Australia. Like you travel all around the world and they don't have them and you just have a beer, listen to music, hence the Whitlam song. Yeah. Uh, you know, like how, how are you going to get there and sort of what sort of pushback are you getting at the moment? Well, that's the golden question, hey. Like, it's it's something that I've, my opinions have changed on it numerous times this year alone. Like, where where does it stop? You, you got to look at a point. Like, the government, you know, I would speak just from New South Wales government because that's the state I'm in, New South Wales. They take, you know, millions of dollars, if not, you know, billions of dollars in revenue a year from gambling. Now, the whole thing. The reason why this they've become so powerful, the gambling industry, is because they're not held to the same constraints. You use alcohol. Alcohol is a perfect example. Um, if someone's pissed at a bar, they're cut off and they're, you know, given a water, ask to leave the venue, make sure a taxi's called, make sure that they are okay to get home or whatever. If you see someone, you know, blowing their wage through a poker machine or through the TAB, no questions asked. It all comes down to duty of care. Now, if they do bring about real reform, which is highly fucking unlikely, though, it what does that then open up the government to? Like, you know, imagine the the court cases if they really start practicing duty of care. Like, if they just flip the script and go, okay, yep, if we see such and such here, you know, once a week we'll have someone who can go and intervene, and you know, but there's people that have already lost everything, including people that have lost their lives. So how the hell do they get to that point where they can have real reform? I don't see it as a viable option moving forward. And that's why I distance myself from reform-based discussion, not because it's not without its merits, but for me, I don't see us winning that battle there. Um, Banning gambling, look, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have gambling in our country. I wouldn't have gambling where my son could eventually be uh, tempted by it. But again, that 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 just is met with so much resistance as well. You get people they go, "Oh, you're just trying to tell us what to do," and you just fuck it's endless. I'm like, "Yeah, okay, look, I see your point of view, but that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to protect people from gambling harm because it's a real thing." So I, I don't go there. I look. My my solution would be if the industry wants to continue doing what it's doing, okay, go ahead, but don't fucking lie about what you're doing. Don't put this image out there. Don't hide behind the fucking RSL, the veterans banner and make out like you're this community-minded organisation and you're doing good things. Tell the truth. Don't try and hide your financials in, in pages full of bullshit. 
just say, yeah, look, this year we took fucking 50 mil through the pokies. This year we know that there's probably 15 or 20 people from our venue that have suicided because of their gambling addiction. This, you know, this year we're going to put people in in, um, in venues that can identify people and when people hit rock bottom we can get a real self-exclusion policy that's enforced by law and actually get people real help. There's there's loads of shit that they could be doing, but again, if, you know, they say that 2% of people are problem gamblers, that's not true. If that was really true, why would they fight? Why would the industry fight tooth and nail if 98% of their revenue was just from people that had come in and have the occasional flutter? It's not true. And that's the reason why they fight tooth and nail against reform. My, my, my whole purpose now with kicking the punt is to change the culture around gambling in our society. That's where we win. Look at cigarettes. You look at, you know, when our parents grew up, they were giving people durries in the shopping centres. People still, still smoke cigarettes now, but you go and buy a packet of cigarettes, you see some guy that's just died from, from the stuff, the complications that happen when you smoke. People are aware of the damage that, that cigarettes cause now and the people that are smoking, it's slowly declining because people are making, you know, better decisions and decisions that they know, like, oh, well, if I smoke, I know eventually long-term that's probably going to do me in. The same discussion needs to be had around gambling. It's just it's just that simple. And But, again, you hit this, mate. I could talk all night about the fucking obstacles I've hit with these kind of discussions. And I'm talking to, sorry, I've spoken to academics, like good academics who don't take money from the industry and bad academics. I've spoken to politicians. I've spoken to people from the industry that have worked in the industry, that still work in the industry, that are high up, that know exactly what happens. I have people within the office of Clubs New South Wales that are still employed there that give me intel on a weekly basis of what happens there. I, I, I'm, I'm privy to everything, but they they so they operate like they're above reproach. They don't they're not they don't fear anything or any kind of repercussion because they they're so well connected and influenced. If we if we really want to have an honest conversation about gambling, there's a few things that we could do straight away to fix it. Stop industry money from going to political parties, so that immediately cuts that influence off. Stop industry money from going into academics that you know that use that research to dictate. Um, and have an impact on public health policy relating to gambling harm. And in you know, if you in my in my ideal world now, we just have gambling at the casino. We wouldn't have it on every fucking corner um, in New South Wales at every pub in New or most pubs in New South Wales. It's not a perfect solution, and I'm not saying there's not malpractice that happens in casinos. I know that those places cause miseries, but at least you know I didn't go down to the pub to have a palmy and a, and a schooner with the boys on a Friday night um, and watch the footy. I just, you know, that's what I was going down there to do, but I'd leave after spending every fucking cent I had and not knowing what the fuck happened. I went down there to catch up with my mates and have a feed and have a couple of beers, watch the footy and drive home, and I'd, every time I'd leave with nothing. And I'd be like, what the fuck's happening? At least if you're going to go to the cast, you know you're going there to punt. Like, you know, and it's not a perfect solution but it's, it's more of a realistic solution in my eyes. And I've got to be more realistic with this now because otherwise you just, you'll end up just, I'll end up just burning out and not being able to do what I do anymore. Like it's, I think the key uh, without going on another tangent is changing the culture in our society. And we're doing that. 
I don't get much blowback like from from people. Like I get the odd negative comment, but mate, ninety nine percent of the feedback we get was kicking the punt is overwhelmingly positive and supportive because people know. Like it's becoming more as gambling becomes more accessible, the the prevalence of the damage that it causes becomes more more visible. So it, it's 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 at a point now where it's like, you know. It, it's really starting to become visible for a lot of people. And it's not, like I said, I've got, you know, people that are, you know, very high up in, in companies that struggle with it too. The, the average trade like me battles every week, you know, I've got bikies who have been on, you know, in tears to me on the phone, like very pet, like hectic dudes that, you know, don't have a fear or anything, but they can't beat their addiction. It doesn't matter who you are. Like I've, I've had every kind of person I've spoken to them this year because, it affects everyone. We've got the loved ones. We've got, you know, it, it's it's just endless, mate. It's endless. Discriminate like drugs, drugs, like whatever. It does not discriminate. No. I think, I think you've made a massive point and, I, you know, I commend you, mate. I think you've got a good, um, a great vision. The thing with the RSL, if you were to tackle it properly and remove the pokies, well, they don't have a business. Yeah. Now, the business model has been set up fraudulently as far as it's in a it's set up in the way to appear as a community service and a community awareness um, sort of group and something that can provide you know great services to the greater good of the community but it's not so if you remove the pokies they're going to go under and then they're, they're not going to do well that's that's the that's why they're going to continue operating. People aren't. Do you, know, going to- do you know what, mate? Like you know, they say that, and you, you're a hundred percent on the money, right? They, they've they've set up their business practice to be anti-innovation. Is that our problem? Fuck no. They made they made their bed, and they're going to fucking line it because I don't go to a job as a tradesman and see asbestos ridden through a bathroom, and I'm going to do a bathroom renovation. And go, oh fuck it, I'll just leave it. Like, well, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. No, I do the right thing. Like they, they have a moral and ethical obligation to do the right thing and they choose not to because they've, they've, they've chosen uh, greed and, and, and you know what, it, we live in a world where that happens. You know what, that's just, that's just the reality of our world that we live in. Okay. But don't then fucking take it that next step and pretend like you're doing so much fucking good things in the community when every single person that works in that venue knows exactly what's fucking happening. Well, it's not just gamblers we get, mate. We get people that work in venues in fucking tears that are suicidal because they see all the shit that's happening. They've devoted their, you know, many years of of their life to a career in hospitality and and, um, in the clubs and all the rest of it. They've built good friendships with patrons and stuff and they see them. They see them come, they see them lose everything. And they see them, and they either see them die, or they just see them stay in that cycle. And it's just to them that gets to them over time as well. Um, and it, it's just like it's just yeah, it's a cesspool that needs to be changed. And someone that is in charge, like politicians and uh, or people within the industry, need to to start doing more and stop pretending like we're all making informed choices about our gambling. You know, that's what the academics that are bought by the industry say. Oh, it's an informed choice. You know, people have the right to choose. Fuck that. You've designed machines and applications on your phone to condition and addict people. That's not an informed choice. You're taking people's choices away when you design a product to condition and addict them. Yeah, there's nothing informed about it. And, I mean, it's a long road and 
I think everything you're doing is going to slowly, hopefully build and, and people are going to become more aware and hopefully the culture is changing. It's like anything, we've got to start somewhere. I feel like there hasn't really been a start with the RSL and having conversations about what the RSL is doing for some reason for a long period of time. They've sort of got through unscathed and, and silent on the side of things. There hasn't been too many whistleblowers discussing what they're doing to the community. And I think it's brilliant what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate that, mate. And you're right. They've, they've, they've hidden, like, they're not, they're, you know, they're not stupid. Like, they're, 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 it's an intelligent organization. They're, they're very well connected. They're very well versed in, they're, they're masters of deflection. And they, they are very quickly to jump on people like us because they don't want that kind of exposure. They don't want because they want to remain in the shadows and continue business as usual and just, you know, keep their human farms operational and just extract as much money out of the community as they can. You know, we routinely do, you know, media. We haven't done much in the last sort of month or so, but, you know, every media opportunity I get locally, I go, let's do it out the front of Ballina RSL. And I can guarantee the CEO, Bill, there, his fucking skin would crawl every time he sees me out the front talking on the news about his fucking venue and what he, what he does to people and he, they hate it. They hate being exposed. You know, a lot of them as older white white men that are just, you know, very egotistical and, they you know, they get within this um, – this industry and, it, it, you know, the ego takes over and the power and, you know, they're, they're in, there's no there's no incentive for them to, to make, the, you know, the RSLs are, are owned by the members. You know, there, there's no incentive for them to take that much money. Like, you know, even with DY, like if you look at their financials and I can guarantee they're fucking dodgy as, there was still like close to eight million left over once everything was all paid for, all said and done. Like, why the hell did they need to keep that eight million in their war chest? Like, they don't need like you know they pay their CEOs you know six seven figure salaries. They pay all their bonuses, you know, the KPIs and all that sort of shit. They're making shit loads of money out of it. The people at the top, you know, the senior management, the executive team. What? Why? Why would they need to keep making more? Like, let's say, okay, they, let's say that there's eight million left once it's all said and done. Give it back. Get put it into towards something. Build a rehab or do something with it. But the thing is, if they start actually trying to to you know fix this issue, their business go their business goes with it. So they they have a vested interest in in all aspects of of our community, like right up until the political uh, parties, to to ensure that this it remains this, what exactly what we're facing now, which is a gambling epidemic. And it's been like this for many years. It's and been like this for so many years and nothing's happening. And you touched in saying with um, Gary's story and you touched on a, a little bit ago as far as the responsible service of alcohol. I mean, the amount of times I've been in a pokey room and me and my mates have been falling over drunk and not being kicked out is, you know, I couldn't, couldn't count how many times. Like it's, it's a common scene and it's a common thing for them to push booze and continue to just overfeed people with alcohol. Yes. What impact do you think alcohol plays on the whole pokey and gambling culture? Like, oh, yeah, it's huge, mate. Like, I never gambled without, without a, you know, piss or a schooner in my hand. Like, it was. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, um, once when I stopped drinking, I didn't, um, I never gambled. 
I never yeah. had since. And I, I only thought about that recently. But once I stopped drinking, I actually never gambled. And yeah. I realized like it was a byproduct. I'd never gambled sober. So it was a it could have been a byproduct of my drinking. I mean, how hard have you looked into that and and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it's it's fucked in Queensland because legally they can still give alcohol. And, you know, that, it happens in New South Wales as well, but it's not legal. Um, but they, yeah, they know, like they'll have, they'll have, they'll go down to a detail, like, you know, your pub, your pub down the road, I can guarantee that their management would have a spreadsheet on the players that play, routinely play in the venues. Um, you know, a few, a few venues in my area got busted for that recently um, where they'd have, you know, information like, oh, here's Ben. Ben's a Tyler. He get, usually gets, you know, paid on a Thursday. He usually comes in on a Thursday, you know, to watch the footy and, and have a snitty with his mates. Um, ben loves rum. So when he comes on a Thursday, make sure you, you know, give Ben a couple of free rums, get him into that gaming room, keep feeding him piss, and he will he will give us every cent that he has. They that they you know it's insane the detail that these places go into to um to make sure people stay in front of those machines for as long as they possibly can. And alcohol is a major player with gambling. Um, you know, if I was in a gaming room, I'd be drinking. Like that's just it. And especially towards the end, as my gambling become less frequent but way more destructive. And way more deadly, I, I I drunk as fast as I could to make sure that if you know if my wife did catch me where I was or whatever that I, I would have enough liquid courage to tell her to fuck off so I could keep doing what I was doing. I mean, I've been in venues. You know, the day I the day I attempted suicide in 2018, like I was at the Mullumbimby RSL for you know from 11 o'clock onwards right into the early afternoons. It's a it's a little old RSL full of mostly old people. And I was embarrassed. You know, I think about it now. You know, I, I was gambling. I was drinking schooner after schooner after schooner after schooner. No questions asked. You know, I was running low on money. I got a warning about being pretty loud and pretty boisterous. And I am a, a bigger dude. And when I do get a belly full of piss, I have a tendency to get not aggressive, but like just loud. I'm a loud person. So... You know, but then I won. You know, I won a major jackpot around three k, whatever it was, and fucking after that, mate, switched up to rum, no questions asked. Could barely walk by the time I left that venue. I was throwing money at the bar staff. They all thought it was a fuck all hilarious. I was giving people money in the venue, randoms. I was fucking here, take it. You know, I was creating a, a big a bit of a scene, mate. I clearly, completely fucking intoxicated. Um, clearly saw me leaving the venue with my car keys in my hand and not one, not one, and you know what, I'm not saying this to just put the whole blame on it. It's at the end of the day, like I'm a fuckwit for doing that, you know, without a doubt. I'll say that and I know that and I've owned that and accepted that. But at the end of the day as well, they have a duty of care to people that enter their venue and they do not practice that duty of care. And when you're gambling, the duty of care that is so stringently practiced with alcohol goes out the fucking window. You know, and I went to another venue, uh, the Ocean Shores Country Club, after the Mullumbimby RSL. Again, completely fucking smashed. Went straight up to the bar, ordered a drink. They were real sus on me. They were real sus on me. But they gave it to me and they said, I want you to have a water as well. Um, and they said, if, you, if you're still, you know, 
carried on after this. You won't, you won't be able to drink. As soon as I fucking went in that poker machine room, the rules were gone. There was this fucking drinks flowing in there as well. And that, you know, I didn't make it to that third venue because that's when I tried to run my car off the road. And, you know, when the coppers, when the coppers got there, um, my, I was so high range, like super, super high range. And it happens, it happens. We get messages every fucking week of it, you know, mates saying, oh, my mate was, you know, you know, another example without naming names. We were in a pub in Newey and I was trying to get my mate out of there. He was pissed and the security come and asked me to fucking leave. And I was sober. I was a Deso driver. And he's like, I'm just trying to get my mate out of this venue. He's just, he's wasting, he's doing, he's doing his ass. He's spending every cent he's got. The fucking security asks him to leave and leave his mate who's pissed in the game, in the, in the, in the gaming room. Like they, they, they just run on their own fucking rules. And like, it's just like, in, until that changes, That'll keep, that'll continue, and and you know what? It won't fucking change because it comes back to that that same that same old adage: is if they if they if they start practicing duty of care, who's liable for all the misery that's happened in the last you know many decades that we've had this fucking thing happening in our country? Yeah, and they're making money off you all afternoon. So, like with any business, you can't just make money and forget about the repercussions of the work you've done. So. No. All Arvo, and then chucked you in your car, let you jump in your car and drive around, you know, drunk as, drunk as all hell, you know, and almost kill yourself. So there is a duty of care. There's responsibility of it yourself. And um, I think, yeah, it's everyone's, you know, both sides have, have to play a part in it. But I think with the alcohol thing, when you're talking about not just Obviously, what you're trying to do is change the gambling culture, but when you talk about people trying to recover from this sort of stuff, I think one of the hardest things to do would be to do it while you're still drinking. Uh, considering- yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't really drink much anymore, mate, because not that I, I, I still enjoy the occasional beer, but, mate, I'm very, like, I'm very wary of if I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'll, you know, it's... For instance, this year, all my mates, my close mates were all turning 30 and every single one of them has made sure that we've had it, the 30th at a place where there's no gambling and there's no and there's no way I can, you know, if I drink excessively, they won't let me leave or anything like that. That's, that's how much they know and how much they support me. Um, but, yeah, if you're trying to recover from a gambling addiction, we often have people that will go, oh, I still want to go to the pub and catch up with my mates and, you know, have a beer, but I'm not going to punt. It's just not, it's not reality. You have to stop. Like you have to, doesn't mean that you have to give up the drink forever. And look, the alcohol addiction is something that I, I have had issues with alcohol, but due to my gambling, and I understand that that's a whole nother massive issue within itself, but I try not to comment too much on alcohol addiction because I'm not, I, I wasn't where I was with my gambling addiction, with my alcohol. Like as soon as I stop gambling, I don't really drink anymore. And we will still go out and have the occasional drink with friends and that, but it's completely different to what I was doing from the age of 18 up until 29. Like massively fucking different. You know, there's, there's no interest for me to, to drink like that anymore because I don't, I don't enjoy it the way I used to. When I was, look, there was nothing fucking better. You know, when I was fully fledged in my gambling addiction, there was nothing better in my life than sitting in front of a machine, gambling, drinking schooners, 
like that whole toxic fucking thing that I built up in my head, like that was my happy place. That's no longer my happy place. And and alcohol, it does it's changed for me. It's you know, there is people out there that, that struggle with alcohol addiction and I I feel for those people. But there's also you know, there is people out there that I suppose, you know, drinking it's not an issue for them. I don't know. But the same people say that shit about gambling with me. I'm like, fuck that. Any person that gambles, if you gamble consistently enough and regularly enough, you will become conditioned to it and you'll become addicted. And I suppose it's the same with alcohol, but I try not to go too much into it because I don't understand it the way I understand gambling. But I, I don't drink anymore really because of, because of I don't gamble. And when I do drink, it's, not, it's nothing like I used to, like not even fucking close. Totally, man. And I just, I just think uh, the conversation needs to be had because it, I feel it goes so hand in hand with gambling yeah. and pokey machines. Like I can't say that, you know, you'd rarely see that one sober person going hard in the pokey room, but um, really alcohol is, has, a, it's, it's sort of the, um, the fuel that drives a lot of, a lot of gamblers. Yeah. And I think, Despite, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know uh, the intricacies of how that should be changed and how we should we should um, address it, but I, would, I just think it should be talked about because if you are going through struggles with with you know gambling or pokey machines or any of this sort of shit, one of the best things and the first things you probably should do is is put down the booze if you can, and it's going to be hard. But I know you've talked on online and you, you've said, you know, places to go because obviously you have a lot of people reaching out and Lifeline's obviously there. And this has been a pretty heavy conversation. It's easy to always pick up the phone for Lifeline. I mean, they're there, 131114. You can call at any time. And there's also chat forums and things like that online with Beyond Blue, which you can access at any stage. And they're pretty good because they're semi-anonymous and sometimes you feel like you just want to vent and have a chat. Yeah. So it's good it's like that and, um, you know, reach out to people, obviously. You know, there's lots of lots of options for you out there. That's it, mate. You, you, you're exactly right. The, the best thing anyone can do who's struggling, whether it be with gambling addiction, you know, alcohol addiction, or even just, you know, your own mental health in general, if you speak about it and if you communicate with it, it will get better. Like you, I guarantee if you hold on to it, it will not get better. You have to speak about it. And Lifeline, we always encourage people to speak to Lifeline. Um, if it's a gambling-related thing, if you're a loved one, if you're someone that's struggling with addiction, you can message us any fucking time. The only difference between us and Lifeline is they're 24 hours and they'll get to you straight away where we might not be able to get to you straight away. But generally... If you send us a message, my eyes will see that message within 24 hours generally. But I am just – there's not there's only four of us in kicking the punt, myself, my wife, Jasmine, Dan Saunders and Shonika. They're a part of our leadership team and we work really hard um, to try and get as many people as we can and help as many people as we can. But the beauty of kicking the punt now is it's growing this little community and you can just put a post up. It can be an anonymous post and you'll get like 30 fucking people on that post telling you what worked for them, what didn't work for them, that they're there for you, that they'll support you and it's growing on it's, it's doing its own thing and, and, and that there is a testament to the fact that if you speak about it, it will get better. If you're honest about it, 
even if you're honest about it with yourself to start off with, if you have an honest conversation with yourself first, you will beat it. But if you are critically unwell and you are struggling, Lifeline is your best point of contact, 13, 11, 14. But again, if it's a gambling thing or if you just want to talk to me or someone from kicking the pun in general, you can message us at any time and we will get back to you. But where our capacity is, is severely limited compared to Lifeline, but I'll fucking read every single message and I will continue to do that and I'll continue to do what I do until this changes. And until that happens, we'll keep doing what we're doing and we'll keep having honest conversations just like we've had with you, Mark, and, and hopefully it'll it'll create a bit of a groundswell and it'll really get to a point where they won't be able to ignore it anymore and they'll have to start changing things. You're a legend, mate. Absolutely love what you're doing. Can you tell the listeners where they can find it? It's just Instagram.com slash kicking the punt. Is that right? Or just search kicking the punt without the G? Yeah, if, yeah. If you, if you just search kicking like, like you said, without the G, kicking the pun on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So Instagram's probably our main platform, but Facebook's great. It's a group. Uh, we've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group. The group's better. The group's almost become like this, like um, really like forum. We've got like people that we've lived experience of gambling harm. You've got loved ones. You've got professors. You've got counsellors, you've got psychologists. It's a fucking whole suite of different people that just get on there and they just back one each other 100%. So you've got that. And then you've got Instagram, which is like people's stories, like people putting their faces out there. Not always. Sometimes you have anonymous and that's sweet. I respect that. But we do push people to get out there and tell their story and tell their truth because it'll empower you and it'll empower someone else. And so that's that's our main that's our main points of contact. Um, I try not to give my own personal number out anymore. My psychologist told me I'm not allowed to do that anymore because <laughs> it gets fucking hectic. There's a lot of lot of conversations, and then I kind of um, forget about my own life, and I'm still trying to run my own business, and I'm still trying to be a dad and a husband at the same time. But it, yeah, look, I, I, social media is our best place to to get in touch with us. Um, and if you you know if you do need something one-on-one you can always send us a message through there like I said I always do see them um and if you do need to have a chat with me you know either it's over zoom or on the phone I'm still happy to do that but yeah the, the social media is is the best place and and I would encourage everyone to join you know to to follow us on on Instagram because that's the best place to keep up to date with what we're doing on, on a daily and weekly basis. But also get in the Facebook group because you will get you won't just get me and my perspective. You'll get you know there's nearly a thousand people in that group now that have huge level of experience and understanding of all forms gambling addiction and mental health and it's just a great little place for people to to feel supported and and I'm, I'm proud of that. Like I'm proud of watching that space start off with 80 odd people to where it is now. Like I don't even, it's gotten to a point where I just sit back and I just go, I watch a guy, you know, like Warren at the start of this year who, you know, was living in his fucking car and had just lost everything and his wife left him and he had no access to his kids and he was suicidal and didn't know what to do to this guy now is like, you know, it's not even the end of the year and he's changed his whole fucking life. He's out, he's not in his car anymore. He, he's, he's about to get his own place. He doesn't owe anyone any money anymore. He's seeing his kids again. He's turned his whole fucking life around. And to me, I just look at that guy and that's someone who I've talked to since day one and helped and he's helped me too. And I just go, it works. 
this shit works. And the only thing we're doing is talking about it, not fucking doing anything else. We're talking about it. We're supporting one another. We're doing it the right way, but like we're doing it. There's other organizations and shit out there that unfortunately they're just doing this to get funding and grants so they can fucking line their pockets and talk about, you know, how there's a whole other topic I'm not going to get into, but there's other people out, other places out there that are doing it for the wrong reasons. We're just doing it to help people. And that's, that'll always be our main priority and we'll ne- that'll never change. It will always be authentic. We'll never be, we'll never be fucking something we're not. Yeah, I'm aware of those, uh, those sort of organisations, which is why I was so keen to have a chat to you. As soon as I heard about what you were doing, it, it's truly inspirational, mate, and I just, I just truly hope you stick at it. I know it must be extremely hard work, especially with a young family, but it's something you're going to look back on and you're going to be so proud of the fact that you, you actually acted on um, something that was impacting your life so greatly. And you made such great change. And I just think it's something to be admired. Your son's going to look up to you and just be so proud. So, Ben. I appreciate that, mate. And that you're right. Like, I, it's just something that it is, it is hard, mate. Like, fuck. It's, but I'm now working out what's sustainable for me. And I've still got really good support. And hopefully, you know, I'm studying to become a counsellor that's going to major in addictions. So, you know, I love my trade and I make good money in my trade. And I, but my passion is, helping people and counselling is a really good way to do it. And I believe that the best counsellors that we have in this world are people who have lived the battle that they're trying to help the person with. So that's where, you know, hopefully I can get to a point where I become a counsellor and I can, you know, instead of working 40 hours a week and then working 30 hours a week with kicking the punt or whatever it may be, I can work 40 hours a week as a counsellor and still achieve the same stuff. And just one more thing, um, if this does, people do listen to this that are from the industry that know what the fuck they're doing. You would t- want to talk about legacy. My son will grow up and he will see that his dad tried to make a difference and that will be my legacy. What will your children think of your legacy? Because they will grow up and they will understand what the fuck you're doing and they will understand what you've been a part of and they will look at you like you're the biggest fucking germ on this planet. So ask yourself, is all the money, is your job title, is all the bullshit that you get, is the fucking company car really worth the people that are killing themselves? Because every single day people are taking their lives in this country because of gambling addiction and that is not right and it needs to fucking change. I love it, Ben. And, mate, I think we'll wrap it up there and in the words of the Whitlams, blow up the fucking pokies. Fuck the pokies, mate. And thanks for coming on, mate. Epic chat. Thanks, really. brother. Appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes, as a podcast host, you just have to sit back and shut the fuck up in life. I mean, with someone like Ben, who is literally walking the walk, I feel like giving his voice a platform is why I started doing podcasts in the first place. As any of you would know from the show history, we've adopted the old Read Pod channel, but have deleted slash made private many of the old shows. This was tough to do, but the dead noise is signaling a different time in my life to when I released all of those old Read Pod episodes. As much as I look back with fondness of those times, I plan to have a new direction with the show going forward, albeit maybe somewhat clearer. As with many 30-somethings, I feel I've finally found myself. 
As funny as that may sound, I seriously do. I feel like I've grown. And speaking with people like Ben is where I want to go with this show. I want to give the people like Ben a voice. I want to actually hit the topics that mean a lot to me and I think drive real change in the community and in areas which I'm passionate about. Like the read pod, I'll never shy away from my beliefs because what the fuck is the point of doing this, to be honest, if I do? Right now, the world's upside down. We don't know if a virus is trying to kill us or the government has poisoned us to transform our race into a species of mindless slaves. Who knows what is going on? But despite what's happening in politics and despite what's happening in the world, the pokies actually continue to hurt us and gambling continues to hurt us. And the basic fundamental issues that are plaguing us rage on. We've got athletes piously supporting children's health while supporting and endorsing alcohol companies. Celebrities that are seeking our political ear on Twitter. And being an influencer is an actual career choice for our youth. And top it all off with RSLs who preach community service while running gambling houses. What the actual fuck has happened to this world? Well, I digress though, because here we have a guy who is hell-bent creating positive change. There is still hope. Ben Hamilton from Kicking the Punt. It gives me at least a slither of hope that all you have to do is fucking start. Don't overthink it, just start. That's pretty much it. Ben's done so much with his time since literally kicking the punt and quitting gambling, which just inspires me. Over the last few years, I've spent various points of time focusing on helping others, but I seem to to slip back into this way of thinking about myself. At my happiest times, I've always had a focus and a core focus on, yeah, it is great to help yourself, And it's good to improve yourself. But in my illiterate opinion, we're here to serve others. And what Ben's doing is the essence of that. We touched on so many issues during this podcast and we could have gone deeper and I think we will. I think I'll get Ben back again. He sounds like he's a man with a lot of plans and and I don't think anything's going to stop him. But... One of the big issues that I wanted to touch on is that there is a solution and there is hope for people that are struggling with this sort of addiction. But you have to sit back, take ownership and look at what's happening and how all factors are playing a part in your addiction. The alcohol topic is something obviously Ben didn't want to delve into too deeply But I personally believe and I really wanted to to address it with him because I believe most of this pokey addiction wouldn't be happening without the influence of alcohol. There's very few gamblers who are sitting in there and not consuming large amounts of alcohol while feeding their paycheck through a pokey machine. For me, you have to start at the root cause and alcohol seems to be one of them. 
we've got lots of exciting episodes coming up and I really can't wait to jump back on the podcasting train and drop some amazing episodes. Hopefully I'll get the sound right over time because my microphone continues to play up. But as we grow, I really hope you enjoy what we're doing here. You can find Ben on Instagram, as he mentioned, and we're going to set up a dead noise Instagram too, probably in time for the release of this episode. Thanks for listening and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the great episodes we have coming up.